0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. If you've been with us for some time, welcome back. This is our first weekly roundup under a new name. And if you're new here, I'm so glad to have you with us. Each week, we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. And on today's episode, I'm joined by an incredible panel of familiar voices, a co-founder and former advisor to the Lincoln Project, and a former political director of the California Republican Party, and all-around expert of all things election data and demographics, our good friend Mike Madrid. Mike, it's great to have you back. It's great to have a longer intro. (laughs) And returning to our panel is political strategist and crisis communications consultant, former Lincoln Project senior advisor and MSNBC political analyst, Susan Del Percio. Hello, Susan. Great to have you.
1: Hey, great to be back. Thank you for having me.
0: And Lucy Caldwell, political strategist, former campaign manager for Joe Walsh's primary challenge to Donald Trump, and a former senior political advisor and communications director at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, thank you again for being on today.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: On today's episode, we're going to discuss the exodus of registered Republicans in the wake of the Capitol insurrection the latest and most egregious voter suppression efforts Republicans are implementing across the country, and the mounting legal jeopardy the Trump family and their family businesses are facing. So let's start with the Republican exodus. In the week after the January 6th terrorist attack at the Capitol, tens of thousands of registered Republican voters switched or canceled their party registration, according to NPR and reporting from across the country. About 4,600 Republicans in Colorado changed their party status. There were roughly 6,000 defectors in North Carolina, 10,000 in Pennsylvania, and 5,000 in Arizona. And as we know, despite Biden winning the popular vote by over 7 million, the electoral college was decided by comparatively thin margins in a few key battleground states. Margins where a few thousand voters re-examining their party loyalty may have monumental impacts on their elections down the road, despite these numbers not being monumental themselves. Most of these voters switched to unaffiliated, independent, or a third-party option, and just a fraction re-registered as Democrats. But this is a huge signal that January 6th was a major turning point for how Americans feel about their political affiliations and the groups they want to share a big tent with. So, Mike, I want to start with you. Um... You know, a few thousand votes moving away from Republicans in states like Pennsylvania and Arizona could actually spell disaster for a GOP that is desperate to appeal to voters they've lost during the Trump years. So how should Republicans be thinking about the political costs of the insurrection?
3: There's a couple things to this, and it's important to step back and understand what this means. These are not monumental numbers, but as you pointed out quite accurately, history is made on the margins, mm-hmm. as we say in campaigns. So even a 1% shift in registration uh, is significant. Now, normally we see a 1% shift happen over time, like over the period of a year. This happened in the immediate aftermath. So it's clearly a reaction to that. And it was more than just a shift in public opinion. This was people literally proactively Either getting online in states where they allow online registration, not all of the states that you mentioned to do, mm-hmm. or literally going in to the accounting registrar center or the DMV or wherever or the library to affirmatively say, I right. no longer want to be a, a part of this. Right. And that's a significant factor for where they're at. And remember during the during the campaign, we talked often about the bannon line. We talked about it a lot on this podcast where four percent of Republicans was all we needed to shift off and move that to limit the the Republican party from being a viable um infrastructure for a presidential campaign. If Trump lost just four percent, he would not be reelected. We, of course, doubled that. Um and nationally, you can see the outcomes of that. This is happening uh, everywhere. Mm. Just a report from San Diego County this morning in California. 4,700 Republicans left the party in that timeframe. That's as many as the entire state of Colorado, as you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So this is not an isolated incident.
0: So, Lucy, we saw the number of people who left the Republican Party in Arizona balloon to about 10,000 throughout January uh, after the insurrection and a series of censoring uh, high-profile Republican figures. Can you talk about what's going on in the Arizona Republican Party
2: Yeah, I think that the Arizona Republican Party is a story that we are going to begin to see happening in other places, in places like Georgia, probably down the line places like Texas. But the Arizona Republican Party has been for several years run by perennial loser Kelly Ward, who is a kind of self-styled Tea Party candidate, served in the legislature, mounted several unsuccessful runs for the U.S. Senate. And she has really positioned herself as a chief Trump ally, even in the aftermath of the election, and continues to just be ride or die with Donald Trump. And Kelly Ward and the forces at play in the Arizona Republican Party, in the aftermath of not just the election, but even in the face of the events of January 6th, have just doubled down with Trump. And with them, so go the rank-and-file Republican Party members. So that means send censuring Cindy McCain for support of Joe Biden, censuring former U.S. Senator Jeff Flake, even censuring Governor Doug Ducey, who is a person who, frankly, has been pretty wishy-washy this whole time and has been a, a pretty strong and consistent Trump ally, I would say. And, And so part of the exodus that you're seeing in Arizona of regular voters who want nothing to do with this insanity is... Going to have the effect of actually making the Arizona Republican Party even worse because people who have been high-profile, lifelong Republicans, people like Kirk Adams, who's a former State Speaker of the House uh, and long-term time advisor to Doug Ducey, they have left party leadership and infrastructure, and so the voices in the room are voices of people who share the views of someone like Kelly Ward and. QAnon adjacent kind of talking points. Yeah.
0: So there's a party leadership piece of this. And then there's the, you know, the the voter shift at large. And a part of this I'm having a little bit of trouble with is why now or why was this the moment that led to a rejection of the GOP for these voters? And I wanna, Susan, I wanna start with you and then just go around the table here because it goes Without saying that the Capitol attack was a horrific and appalling moment in this country's history. But frankly, these Republican voters showed immense loyalty to the party through some pretty egregious moments and un-American policies, but really anti-conservative policies also during the Trump years. So we've got family separation and the Muslim ban, bailing out Wall Street instead of Main Street, ballooning the deficit, give tax breaks, you know, to, to millionaires. The malice and indifference shown toward the American people throughout the pandemic. Why do you think all of these moments led to an exodus of folks that were otherwise content with the Republican Party from 2016 until January 5th.
1: Well, I think what happened, as you said, you saw January 6th unfold on television. It definitely affected people strongly. But you add to that, look how President Biden has conducted himself even before he took the oath of office, but even in the last two weeks. He looks like he's managing things. The world did not fall apart because Biden was elected. And that when you see the stark comparison of leadership and governance, it is kind of shocking, not to mention you also have the likes of, you know, Marguerite Taylor Green coming up and and QAnon and that force there. Plus, there's one other thing when we talk about those voters leaving, the Republican voters leaving the party, is that they're the moderates that prevent the absolute rights from winning primaries. And that's when you start seeing even more of a fall down of the Republican Party at the state level and all the way down, because the primary fights are fights to the extreme right. It's between the really right and the extreme right. So yeah. the party has a lot f- and, and, and will lose more Republicans as a result. So the party has a long way to go before it hits rock bottom.
0: Yeah. So, Mike, I can't wait to hear your take on this. And then, Lucy, I'd love you to speak to the like the policy pieces of this that were tolerated by so many voters,
3: almost like, you know, despite Trump's tweets, right? Well, let, let me say this. I believe that there are really now three factions in the Republican Party that are making it extremely difficult to govern and lead. And I think it really explains the dissonance between the way Kevin McCarthy is handling his caucus and the way Mitch McConnell is handling his. There still remains a small... But important faction of what I would articulate as classical conservatives, of which probably the four of us are you know somewhat aligned, or at least it's why we became Republicans in the first place. This is the Liz Cheney wing. And I would even argue, to a certain extent, it's kind of the Mitch McConnell wing. The second is the Freedom Caucus, right? When a lot of us were kind of watching and kind of deep concern, right, in Susan Collins's parlance. You know, we're deeply concerned about where the party is heading. Yeah. This, the emergence of this kind of ferocious, kind of uh, angry wing of the party That is now tipped into the QAnon wing. And the challenge is, you know, John Boehner and and Paul Ryan were not able to ride the tiger of the two two factions within their caucus and ultimately left after a very short period of time in the leadership. Kevin McCarthy has three factions. Hmm. And he's said by going to Mar-a-Lago and by essentially giving a pass to Marjorie Taylor Green that he believes that the QAnon wing is either ascendant, which I believe that it is, or that it is the future of the Republican Party. And so he's going to appease that faction at a minimum. At best case, he's appeasing it. At Second, second, he's actively encouraging it. Very different than what McConnell is at least attempting to do. And if there's a master of his caucus, it's Mitch McConnell, who may or may not, we're gonna find out next week, lose control of what is happening to, to his own caucus, right? As this yeah. devolves. yeah. And the real problematic part of this is without a common thread or a common enemy, and the Democrats don't seem to be that at this point, these three wings really don't want to have anything to do with one another anymore. Yeah, right. Like Matt Gates and Liz yeah. Cheney are like, I don't even know who you are, but right. you don't belong in my house, right. right? And so this infighting is is not just about disagreeing on tax policy or personality. Right. right. This is foundationally different politics. And I don't think it's going to be very long before this just completely rips open you did see uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene just a few moments ago acquiesce and saying, okay, 9-11 absolutely did happen. Yeah. But
0: look, like, this that is not just going to go away. That way. should not be breaking news.
3: No. But it Wait, is. So, well, no. Yeah, right. But that's a headline. It's a frightening headline. Yeah, absolutely it is. But the, the broader point is they're going to have to now start trying to walk back all of the conspiracy theories that they have been feeding this beast for the past 4 years while Donald Trump by the way is sitting in Mar-a-Lago with his new makeshift office and his you know golden laden you know yeah, um, yeah palace going you know no he's going to be encouraging this activity it's not going away and those Trump loyalists of which we know a preponderance of the party remains so are going to be an ascendant faction and i'm not convinced that the way Kevin uh, McCarthy is handling this by appeasing this Look, appeasing extremists has never proven uh, beneficial in the course of, of political history, like basically anywhere. You have to smash the insurrection, as I've said before, in order to, to quell it. Otherwise, you it just makes it stronger. You're feeding it. And I think that that is more, the most likely scenario. And to Susan's point, you're seeing the average Republican voter start to vote with their feet at this moment in time. One of the quick point about that. These have got to be, as somebody's been doing this for a long time, very high propensity Republican voters. Yeah, yeah. Because if you're walking out in January, February, in the earliest part of the off year, you are consciously saying, I am done. And that is somebody who's watching this, paying very close attention, guarantee you 95% of those people voted for Donald Trump. And they're like, this is nuts. Everything that we were hearing, the Never Trumpers and the Lincoln Project folks say, uh, come to watching it come to fruition, that had to be the straw that broke the camel's back. And I don't believe it's the end. I think it's just the beginning.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, Lucy, I want to get your take on whether or not there's even a philosophical core left to the Republican Party and and especially, you know, among among the base, are the people who are leaving the party now are they the only ones who who actually had policy views that you might put in the moderate bucket or like how do we make sense of what people actually believe?
2: Well, I think that the people who are leaving now are probably people who a year ago would have said the kind of things that people like Will Hurd, the congressman from Texas who's now Retired Mm -hmm. have said, which is, we just have to let the fever break. They thought that this was going to kind of resolve itself through the defeat of Donald Trump. Uh, This is why, as Susan and I agreed a couple of weeks ago, we need a better phrase when talking Mm -hmm. about Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for those folks, it is as if they have just found out that what uh, some of us have been saying all along is true, that this is much bigger than one bad guy. So to that and I don't think that we can really say who they are in terms of their public policy views. I, I've really been thinking about what makes someone go along with MAGA, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What causes people to be swept up in it? And I have, I've been really kicking this around a lot this week. I actually think we have overemphasized Discrete political issues as a thing that drives this. I think that uh, there's a kind of lazy attitude that is like people who are Trump supporters uh, hate people who live on the Upper West Side and they hate, uh, you know, you know, like latte drinking, Volvo driving, organic food eating people. Uh, they hate our way of life. They they're like they're these kind of left behind people. I don't think that's true. Uh, we see a lot of places where you know, rich communities of highly educated people are big time Trump boosters. And I think that if you start actually talking to Trump supporters, like if you go and walk a rally line at a Trump rally, you will actually get them to make all kinds of concessions on policy issues that might really surprise you. Like they might tell you that they don't care about abortion, right? Or that they're pro-choice or um, a, a view that might surprise you and so i think we have to stop talking about it as a political force and and talk about it as a cultural force mm-hmm. even some of the people who've been featured you know sort of average everyday voters who've left the party they are leaving it for cultural reasons they some of them are saying things like i'm very very pro life and i'm going to keep i'm going to try to make democrats more pro life right or taking a position on an economic issue one This way, one that way. So, I don't think that we can really sum up what the. I don't think that there are a a nucleus around a kind of core set of public policy views.
0: Bookmark that point because we are absolutely coming back to it over and over again. Um, But let's let's talk about the conspiracy charges. So last week, prosecutors announced conspiracy charges stemming from the Capitol attack against two members of the white supremacist group, the Proud Boys, who the Southern Poverty Law Center classifies as a hate group. Conspiracy charges have also been brought against members of the Oath Keepers which is a so-called militia group that allegedly began plotting to storm the Capitol and prevent the Electoral College vote certification just days after the November election. And Reuters reported on Wednesday that the Justice Department is considering charges under RICO uh, against some of these far-right groups. And if you're unfamiliar, RICO is a federal law typically used for breaking up organized crime. In fact, the five families of New York City's mafia were brought down with the RICO Act charges, including extortion and labor labor racketeering and murder for hire. Now, the conspiracies to stop the vote and to attack members of Congress did not form in a vacuum. That's the big takeaway here. The attackers were clearly encouraged by a lie and emboldened by rhetoric from Giuliani, from Trump's allies in Congress and the media, and most damningly from Trump himself. And you know, as we know, Trump welcomed and encouraged these groups who were once on the fringes to take center stage in his coalition. Um, so Susan, how do you draw the line from the conspiracy charges brought against the attackers? to the president. How do we make that connection?
1: Well, I think we're going to see that happen next week when the um, Senate trial begins on the impeachment charges that uh, the House approved of and voted on. So Donald Trump has, has a problem there because there is a difference. They're, they're, his team's trying to argue free speech, and that's what a lot of the rioters uh, said they were doing. It's not free speech when you, you're breaking things, when you're killing people. When you're maiming people, that doesn't that that is goes beyond free speech. And it's that incitement that gets them there. Now, for example, we saw we, I just saw recently there's an owner of a supermarket in Florida and he doesn't require masks in the supermarket. He has some sign saying we can't ask you if you decide not to wear one. But the employees don't wear them. No one wears them. You know what he also did? He paid to have 100 people go to Washington to be at that what was supposed to be a rally that turned into a riot. Now, Donald Trump very clearly asked people to show up. He rallied them up. He said go fight for me. Even when he was calming them down, they, he said I love you but go home. He has he has embraced this and he has told them and expects those people to follow what he says. So it comes as no surprise that being round up by Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and Don Jr., that this happened. And that's the accountability that people need to see. And when it comes down to the individuals like those 180, which I think that, that number is going to increase, they are going to be held accountable. And you've heard me say this before, <laughs> they're going to turn on everyone they can to avoid getting any type of prison sentence or yeah. fine because if there's someone else to blame that's what this group is about and just to kind of go back to lucy's point these are people who say they want strength they want to blame someone else for their trouble and they're going to blame someone else that that's why you know they were there and the damage they caused so the line is the line is really clear in this case if you have someone who goes out buys a, a box of matches lights a match, and then throws it onto a, onto the ga- a gasoline in-drenched system. Well, there you go. You have a big old bonfire. And that's what Donald Trump did.
0: <laughs> so, Mike, as Susan notes, the House impeached President Trump on January 13th, one week after the siege for inciting insurrection. And earlier this week, we got our first look at the Trump team's response to the charges. And it rests almost entirely on procedural arguments, which are also... You know they're also falsely reasserting the big lie in in these, in this defense. So their defense is hardly a response. It's it's you know, it's not a denial to Trump's involvement on January sixth at all. So to what degree do you think we're going to see the former president be held accountable? And when the case seems to be so clear cut,
3: that's actually important because what they're basically going to do is seed. Um, argument the 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 primary reason and the purpose for impeachment right and i do believe um, that what we're going to see is a lot of visual data and we're going to learn a lot more about how deep this ran from information that we have not heard yet and i think it's going to shock americans on how explicit and how direct and the correlation between what was happening from the white house Enablers very close to him and allies, members of Congress that will be sitting in on these impeachment hearings and the hearings uh, themselves. So, uh, look, there is no question this is going to be extraordinarily damaging in the court of public opinion to the yes. Republican Party. And it's going to make it extremely difficult to hold back when the basic argument is going to be a procedural uh, defense, which is – you can't, and by the way yeah. – th- Impeaching somebody after they're out of elected office is not uh, un, unheard of, right, uh, yeah. for, for lower level uh, officials. I think it's a very, very weak argument, not just legally, of which I'm not a lawyer, but in the court of public opinion, which is really what this is about,
0: yes. um,
3: it, which I, I do dabble a little bit in, in that space. So I <laughs> think it's going to be really extraordinarily difficult for Republicans to hold the line. And it really does come down to Mitch McConnell. And make no mistake. McConnell has thrown down the gauntlet. He said, this is the most consequential vote of my entire career, more than war. Okay. This is about him resting control of the party and his legacy. And he has said, this is that important to me. So now this is a direct threat to his leadership. If he can't deliver this caucus, or if he equivocates, it changes the entire trajectory of the history of the Republican Party, and I don't think I'm being uh, over-exaggerating or hyperbolic yeah. by making that statement. Yeah. This is McConnell basically saying, I'm going to be the, the most powerful Republican in the country, in Washington, D.C., and this is what the Republican Party is going to be. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy basically abdicated that responsibility by going to Mar-a-Lago and hunting the Marjorie Taylor Greene question. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So now it's up to McConnell. And that's the decision before him. And he has already indicated that Marjorie Taylor Greene is a cancer on the party. The QAnon problem is something that needs to be gutted out and removed and destroyed. And he's already acting against what could be perceived as the best interests of Donald Trump. So it's not just about the party in an abstract sense. This is a direct attack, a direct challenge to Mitch McConnell's leadership. And if he can rest those votes he's probably, I'm sure, working behind the scenes to make sure that the visual and audio uh, and written uh, evidence is so damning so damning that he can go back into his caucus in between these hearings to say, you better put up these damn votes because otherwise it's going to be a noose around your neck politically. And you're in deep, deep, deep trouble. Yes.
1: You know, and just one other thing on that is don't forget, uh, Mitch McConnell saying I can raise money from corporate America. If I sound like this, he can mm-hmm. go out there. They can't give to the house because Kevin McCart, you know, McHugh or whatever they're calling him these days. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin McHugh, um, <laughs> is, is going, you know, peddling and crazy. And the other thing is he's looking at the the, the scenario of it's 50 50 in 2022, yeah. Georgia's in play again. I mean, so is Arizona, but Georgia is again in play because that was a special election to fill a seat. So Warnock's, you know, is a pretty open target right there. And that's a pickup that changes just Georgia, which is another reason why they need to get uh, you know, that QAnon congresswoman uh, yeah. Marjorie Taylor Greene out of there because it's Georgia.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: But the connection between the impeachment and Marjorie Taylor Greene and those 2022 mi- midterms, there's a much more bigger common thread than I think is clear at first blush, which is that The Republicans, who, by the way, have a ton of seats that they have to defend in 2022, Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to be a walk in the park for them at all. They are going to have to really work to hold seats. They have really decided, and this comes down to that McCarthy McConnell tension, that the only thing you can do. Is turn out the hardcore folks. You've just got to get enough of those people out, and that's why I think when you hear something like that, the part of the impeachment defense is uh, that he was just expressing his First Amendment rights, as though that's our standard for the president of the United States, or that Marjorie Taylor Greene going onto the House floor and saying, "Oh yeah, I was like a QAnon devotee a few months ago, but now I'm not." So, like they they, they want to basically trick people. They're trying to gaslight Americans into thinking that the standards that we have for the president, a member of Congress, are the same as the standards you should have about like the gal who lives down the street and has like a florist shop, right? As as though, you know, well, I've changed my mind, so it's fine. Or I was just expressing my views as though, you know, cancel culture of of uh, the president or a totally out of control um, cult mentality (laughs) congressperson, it means that they're coming for you next and they're going to come for you and knock at your door and find out if you had a Trump yard sign. And those are just not comparable, but that's their game. And it's to continue to motivate people by fear to hang with this incredibly destructive force that is today's Republican Party.
0: Let's leave that topic there. I think that's a really good point, Lucy. All right, I want to talk about voter suppression and specifically what Republicans have quietly been up to in the wake of the November election. So we now know that Republican officials across the country have been urgently devising new ways of making it harder to vote and specifically making it harder to vote for groups of people that tend to vote for Democrats. The threat of an ever-growing Democratic majority and the pretext provided by Trump's big lies, claims of massive voter fraud, have reinvigorated the Republican Party's anti-Democratic efforts with a small D. So Republicans in Georgia specifically have their sights set on restricting mail-in or absentee voting, which President Trump attacked relentlessly through 2020 as being rife with fraud, which it is not. Obviously, that was never the case. Republicans only started to hate mail-in voting in 2020 because Trump began attacking the method, mostly because it's a safe and secure way for more people to vote. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, where GOP senators refused to seat one of their Democratic colleagues until they were forced to by a federal judge, Republicans are preparing to restrict both the processes for receiving and for counting mail-in ballots. And in all, the Brennan Center for Justice counts more than 100 bills in 28 state legislatures intended to restrict voting access. So, Mike, the Republican Party has won the popular vote in a presidential election one time in this millennium. Uh, And the demographic trends will continue to disadvantage what has become, thanks to Trump, infected by white grievance politics, among many other problematic ideologies. And we've talked about how voter suppression and disenfranchisement is now the only path to national victory the GOP has. And yet, more people voted for Republicans than ever before in 2020. And they outperformed in the Senate and the House. So how should we expect to see this combination of both systemic disenfranchisement, systematic disenfranchisement, and overperformance at the same time play out in the coming midterms and the 2024 race?
3: Well, the first thing to to be mindful of is uh, any party that is working to restrict uh, the franchise, to restrict voting, is a party that is not confident in its own beliefs and ideas to actually win a majority. And that's important because it's also a sign that the Republican Party is not going to change. And it's not going to change probably for the next couple of decades, as I've been talking about, for demographic reasons. And I do believe, actually, this is, this, this, Susan will be shocked. I'm actually a bit optimistic about what this portends, because there's going to be a fight on this. And just like the first Civil Rights Act, which came upon us in the mid-60s as a result of Jim Crow segregations and trying to suppress African-American votes, I think the federal government is going to start taking a much more significant role in our voting processes, because when we're talking about things like absentee ballot voting, it's not just about a pandemic. It's about the, the very ways our society has changed since the late 1700s. Mm. Right. Things have changed. Right. Things changed in the last you know two years, let alone the last 200 yeah. years. And as we seek to push greater enfranchisement. Um, more voters are going to fall under different protections, and it's not just going to be by the the, the typical you know categories that we've looked at since the nineteen sixties. We're going to be looking at our processes more, and it's not going to be a sufficient answer for some of these red states to simply say we want to clean the dead wood out of the voter rolls, or there's going to have to be some sort of voter identification. Um, that's th- those types of things I think will will be will be brought up. They will be pushed legislatively. And I believe even with, with a conservative jurist, they will be slapped down summarily. And I think it's going to open the door for very sweeping voter rights reforms that are going to dramatically expand the way that we vote. This will have a very significant impact on our, 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 our elections. And that, that's, that is really what the Republican Party is afraid of at this point in time. You never see the Republican Party working to uh, to, to, to find processes where more people can vote. You just don't, I never have in 30 years of doing this. It's just not part and parcel of the strategy. And it's because their demographic is already of a higher propensity. It's already of a demographic and economic class that worked for their purposes. It also happens to be dying out, literally dying out at a rate far faster than they are being replaced. And that is the primary concern. I am not worried about the legislative fight. We will have those. The bigger and the louder and the uglier that they become, I think, works towards our benefit in the courts because what's going to happen will be similar to what we saw in 1965, which is a much more dramatic, much more sweeping federal hand in uh, assuring that there are more processes, more ways uh, to vote. And more people uh, enfranchised in the process, which I think is ultimately very, very healthy for democracy, regardless of which party it benefits. Yeah,
0: absolutely necessary. So, Susan, we've talked a lot about the role Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger played in defending election integrity after the presidential election. And we're now seeing him support a bill requiring voters to submit a photocopied ID with an application for an absentee ballot and the ballot itself he's supporting another measure that would make it easier to challenge a voter's legitimacy at polling places. This is all according to the New York Times. We also just watched the Georgia election results hold up in two recounts. So how should we be thinking about Republicans who recognize Joe Biden won the election? These are establishment Republicans, but who are willing to tip the scale for the next election.
1: Well, at the end of the day, elected officials are trying to do a voidaire of who they want in their districts and who they want voting. You just can't pick the voters and you you have to recognize you're representing everyone in your district, but they only want certain people to vote so they can say that's who I'm supporting. On the face of it, of what's happening in Georgia, it's absurd. I mean, it's bananas. How can you say we just had the safest election and mostly with the highest integrity and then say we? need more effort to restrict people from voting because that was 2020 rather. And, and that was a pandemic. Oh. oh, we had to make changes. It was a pandemic. Well, maybe what we should learn from the pandemic is that look how many more people voted. We had the highest voter turnout in nearly a hundred years. Now it's, as it turns out, the Republicans even though they had a high turnout, didn't get the result they wanted. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because the fact is, is that a lot of people turned away from Donald Trump and and their ideas and their and the philosophies there and, and, and the flawed and, and hurtful policies. So, of course, the Republicans are trying to do this because they have no other option. I think Mike's right. Like that door, there's no other path. Yeah. Unless you are truly willing to really take a hard look at who you are as, as a party and who you want to represent. The problem is, is that people don't want to represent. Republicans don't want to represent the people in their districts. Crazy. Yeah,
0: That's such a good point. It's, it's the idea that you're only accountable to the people who voted for you as opposed to everybody in your district.
1: Yep. And that's what yeah. ironically, that's what Joe Biden was basically saying when he said, I will be a president for all Americans. Doesn't matter if you voted for me or not, you're still you know, you still need the vaccine, for example. Yes. I'm not going to prevent you from getting a vaccine, whereas Donald Trump was like, New York, no vaccine for you. I don't like your governor. I mean, it's just that's the, that's what's needed. And in some cases, we need just enough people to kind of come together to move decent policies. But boy. I think these these um, these proposals to restrict voter participation are going to get hammered and they should at the state level. The feds take too long and there's too many complications. But I want to take every I want to take on every state. I'll start with Georgia and Texas, maybe.
0: Well, let's talk about Arizona because a Republican lawmaker in Arizona just introduced a bill at the end of January that would allow state state legislature to override the Secretary of State certification of its electoral votes anytime before the presidential inauguration. So, Lucy, we saw this level of wholesale voter disenfranchisement in the court cases while Trump tried to overturn the election. Can you help us understand? how we should think about this method of election rigging carrying over beyond Trump and take the the Arizona case specifically.
2: Yeah, well, that bill is really egregious. I just read it the other day um, because I saw a press release from the member who introduced it. Her name is Shauna Bullock. And I'm mentioning that because I want to tell you a little story about who she is. (laughs) I read a press release from her claiming that the media was disenfranchising voters by their take on on her bill, which is very sort of Marjorie Taylor Greene-esque thing to say. Um, So I went and read the language of the bill, and it is very clear. It is a very clear effort to disenfranchise voters by saying in this bill, which will not pass, uh, that the legislature between election day and inauguration day can just simply choose different electors to send as part of the electoral college process. So that means that I mean if I mean what would even be the point in voting in the presidential election in Arizona I don't know if that were the case. But the reason I mention the member who introduced this is that she is such an interesting microcosm of the kind of cult of Trump. So she is, uh, if if you want to kind of make the link to the Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas episode that has been in the news this week, she herself is married to an Arizona Supreme Court justice named Clint Bullock, who is a guy who is is a protege of Clarence Thomas, but he himself came up in kind of libertarian-y, free market conservatism, co-wrote a book with Jeb Bush a few years ago, 10 years ago, probably called Immigration Wars. Very, very classic conservative guy, socially, you know, libertarian fellow. They live in a district, his wife's district, where she barely eked out a win. <laughs> she barely w- won re-election. Um, every legislative district in Arizona is one senator and two members of the state house. The other state house member is a Democrat. Uh, it that district is part of Metro Phoenix, uh, a, a part of a larger area that went clearly for Biden. It's why Biden won uh, the state of Arizona. And it is exactly what Susan is saying. You have this woman who comes from a tradition of classic conservatism, who has decided to go all in with Trump because she doesn't give a damn about representing all of her voters. She even coming out of this race, coming personally from a tradition of classical liberalism, you know, kind of that tradition, she has decided to go all in on MAGA. And in addition to being short-sighted, it is just so interesting that it is not the case that this is just, again, like, she represents downtrodden people and there are all these coal miners... It is is just such a a weird story of a person who thinks, okay, well, I crave being in office. I'm going to get so many nasty notes after saying (laughs) this. This is one of the most desperate people you'll ever meet. She has just been desperate to be in office for years. She finally gets in. This woman now is in a district in Metro Phoenix, and she has decided to appoint herself the person to disenfranchised voters because she only cares about the republicans who voted for her. I am I'm, I'm obviously making this a little too personal, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but God the, bless but the, Shana. But but, but but that's where it, but but that's where it starts. That's where it starts, you're right. And Susan, this is exactly this is exactly the phenomenon that that Ann Applebaum described in that book. Uh, Twilight of Democracy, which we discussed yeah. on this podcast, because she actually used Laura Ingram as a perfect example of someone who had a very, very refined educational pedigree, who was a uh, like a classical liberal conservative, who then ultimately went all in 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 this sort of like alternative facts world, and right. and and part of the book is sort of an exploration of how people, you know. How you lose friends over politics when they when they succumb to or choose to go down that path? It's it's a uh, Susan. I'm interested in what you have to say about this because it's it's um, you're right that it starts there, and then and then you you start continuing making these concessions, and and then eventually you wind up in your you know your your full on queue. Well, in part, look at what.
1: Um The QAnon lady, the congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene said when she was accused of it, she's of of, not accused when she was responding to everything that she had said and looking to make things. What did she say? We have nothing to apologize for. We will continue to fight. It's always we. It's always bringing in more people into a fight. It doesn't matter what fight it is. It's a fight though. It gives us, we are stronger together. And that, that especially in the time of a pandemic is very strong when people are isolated and you start, you know, I used to say my mom is just like one click away from like becoming part of a conspiracy theory because she just keeps looking and it was a friend of hers that sent something and then she clicks on and then she clicks on something else. Mm. And, you know, before you know it, she's asking me is, you know, some really crazy questions, but she's learned. So it's really good, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm proud of her. But the the fact is, is at the end of the day, a lot of people don't learn. They end up finding more people that Mm -hmm. think like that. Mm -hmm. And then that starts to build and that starts allowing you to block out other people who don't think that way. And you can give them as much information as you want, disproving these theories. I mean, just on the base of it, some of the Q stuff is just bananas. Makes no sense. Like no yeah. one, I would think no one could possibly believe it until we see how people come into it. And what it is, is it's something to fight against, and it's something that people can
2: join in together. Mm-hmm. And it is making its way into the mainstream much more than we're acknowledging. People who would denounce QAnon are talking about things like, you know, the conspiracy that Joe Biden won't be president in a year because, you know, he's just like having brain aneurysms right and left and will soon be out because the far left is trying to, to push him. I mean, all these things that seem bananas. And until you're having a conversation with a person who may not even be a Trump voter, yeah. may not even be a supporter of some of these bills. It's that that's the irony of someone like Marjorie Taylor Green acting as though, you know, the media is just as guilty as QAnon when in fact the media has even allowed some of this stuff to to seep into relatively mainstream stuff to the fact that to the point th- th- that mainstream people even are taking on qAnon adjacent theories without even realizing it.
0: Yeah, this is Mike this is a point that you have made repeatedly here and and elsewhere about how big and dangerous this phenomenon is and and how we we really haven't come to grapple with it yet.
3: Well, it's a social phenomenon, right? Not, it's not a political problem right we see it evidently in our, in our political institutions because it's starting to consume them yeah but there's something very significant these are tectonic plates that are moving in our society and it's not going to go away and i think this is it's kind of the same way that we were we were warning people over the past year that the goal here was to 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 uh, derail democracy mm-hmm. the goal here was to upend and overthrow the government essentially and again Sometimes when you hear that language, listeners will hear the language and they kind of dismiss it and say, okay, that's just Madrid being Madrid. And I get that. But but when it's proven right, um, I want to say again with clarity, the QAnon segment of the Republican Party is far bigger than we think it is, and it's growing. And the reason why is you don't necessarily have to have a Q flag and dress up with you know, bullhorns and and you know, <laughs> a coonskin cap and you know, paint your chest and storm the capital to be QAnon. It begins, like Susan said, with very small incremental steps, with people clicking on one thing and starting to go down this very slow road. And there are gradations of this of the way you become radicalized online. Mm. And part of radicalization is breaking down the confidence you have in the systems that we all agree on as society. And again, that doesn't happen with somebody just knocking on your door and saying, hey, I want to preach to you the gospel of QAnon. That's not how it happens. The way it happens is through nickels and dimes. They're very small steps. And there are many, many thousands of people who are already slowly going down this road and kind of casually saying, yeah, maybe this government you know, that isn't working, maybe there is something else afoot. Maybe there is something else going on. And maybe there is something wrong with the voting systems. And there is a community out here of a lot of people talking about this. And you know what? I'm kind of pissed off about it myself. And then it just kind of grows and grows and grows into this deeper and crazier conspiracy theory. So I think in many ways, the media's characterization of QAnon basically saying that it's a philosophy believe, that believes that there is an international you know child sex ring being run by the Democrats under a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., that may be an element of it. But that's not like people were just one day convinced of that. Right it's thousands of people going through what we have seen in different parts of the world which is radicalization look if the storming of the capitol was not a radical mm-hmm. a radical uh, element with people who have become political radicals and domestic terrorists i don't know what is and we've got to if you believe that it's just this small coalition and crazy faction of people you really need to pay better attention because it is growing and it has a lot more to do with the way that misinformation is moved, the way our brain works, the way that we become radicalized, the way we become more hyper-partisan, which leads to this radicalization and this tribal element which is really dominant and is going to get bigger over the next couple of decades where people's identity are, is feeling threatened. And in, in, when, whenever somebody's identity is threatened, look out they will start to look to find news or evidence or facts in their own you know alternative facts to to confirm their pre-existing beliefs they're not mentally or biologically in a place where they're like oh yeah okay let me learn about change and figure out how I can kind of make things change change is very difficult for human beings by design by biological design and that that is very problematic and that's really what is happening and we're not talking about it that way which is why the only way we can talk about it is watching the silly circus kind of unfold and going, what is going on? That woman's crazy. Listen to what she's saying. And you realize it's not just her, it's an entire caucus. And there's a whole group of candidates and it's a social phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Think about it the way in the past year, as we've fought a global pandemic, it turns out that we learn things after the fact, like how COVID is transmitted, right? Uh, whether it's on surfaces, how is it passed, right? And we are learning all these things where we are only able to learn about it because it's happened, right? Because we're all trying to sort of take this on in real time. It is the same thing with a force like what I guess we're calling for these purposes, QAnon, which is that we are currently using the wrong measuring sticks, the yes. wrong metrics to see it. We are looking for things like, did you vote for Donald Trump? right uh, no i didn't vote for Donald Trump okay well you must not be in it because in my venn diagram everyone in the qanon circle is you know right. also consumed by the larger circle of trump voters right uh, did you um do you support random issue oh okay and we are not seeing right now we don't know yet what are the ways that we should we yeah. should measure this yeah. and and so that's going to continue to be a, a very big challenge
0: Okay, let's move to the topic I'm looking forward to the most, tax fraud. Um, the, the, (laughs) The New York Times reported that a state judge ordered Trump Family Business and Associates to share documents with investigators looking into tax fraud. The investigation began after Michael Cohen, the former president's former attorney and fixer, told Congress that Trump inflated his assets when applying for bank loans and had understated them to reduce his tax bill. This is just one of a barrage of heat-seeking legal missiles headed for the former president now as a private citizen. Trump is threatened by both a criminal investigation led by the Manhattan District Attorney, which is currently stalled pending a Supreme Court ruling, and a civil inquiry by the New York Attorney General, into possible fraud in Trump's business dealings before he was elected. So the 45th president is also obviously in the midst of his historic second impeachment. Lucy, if charges are filed against the president or his close associates, it feels like we already know how his defenders are going to respond, that that this is another witch hunt because Democrats hate the former president and so on. Does the former president's legal jeopardy create additional political risk for the Republican Party and especially his most ardent defenders? So this is separate and apart from the insurrection and all of the political problems that that creates for them. But does his personal and, and business legal risk, um, you know, present problems for them as well?
2: I don't think so. I don't think so. We've already seen such a ratcheting down of standards. And, you know, going back to not not knowing how to read the signs mm-hmm. or read the tea leaves of of the general public, I, I think that a lot of people are pretty bought into this idea that all politicians are corrupt. This happens on both sides. I mean, there's a lot of false equivalency. Um, and so I think the attitude, if you are talking to a loved one or a close friend or colleague who says, well, you know, what about Hillary Clinton or, you know, what about this or that Democrat? I think you'll start hearing a lot of that. And the answer should be, yeah, everyone right and left, if they're committing crimes, should be prosecuted and it should be fully investigated. Um, But I already hear some of those conversations happening. And so I don't think it'll make a difference. I think anyone who right now, after everything that has happened, including the events of last month, is still feels like they want to tick, you know, the name of someone with an R at the end of their name who is enabling a lot of this sort of craziness.
0: We're still going to do why, it.
2: Why the hell would yeah. it make a difference if Trump is is prosecuted? We already know all this stuff. We already know about all of this. We already know about his extensive corruption. Um, so I don't think so.
0: Mike, how do you expect, you know, as these, as these investigations continue, how do you expect the former president to act now that he lacks his... Cyber bully pulpit.
3: <laughs> well, as you as, look and listening to to the your first podcast with Mary Trump is is a, it's a great conversation to have <laughs> with somebody who knows them intimately. Right? Yeah. These are not good days for the president, and the the beauty of it is we don't have to be exposed to it on a day in and day out basis. Look, I think that um, the way Donald Trump has survived in his life is by creating whatever narrative allows him to excuse or deny. Uh, the realities that get in his way. Right. And the problem here is he's always done that in a very public way. It's been kind of fascinating to see uh, the the mental state of somebody who is in deep, deep trouble who simply lies bigger every time hmm. to get out of whatever problem he's into. It's a, kind of like a reverse Ponzi scheme, right? In your own mind. And it 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 works. It, it works until it doesn't. And I think we're at the point of where it doesn't anymore. And I, I don't know personally, I think it's going to be a very, I, I think it's going to be a very tragic, sad ending for somebody who's going to have to live in his own mind, who has always, always sought public, adulation, external validation, because he can't live in his own mind because he'll have to look at what is actually going on. He's not wired to do that. The coping mechanisms that he developed to become Donald Trump and overcome whatever trauma he experienced has always been to seek greater adulation, greater external validation. Now that he doesn't have his primary tools to do that, which is his social media handle, his rallies, I think it's going to be a, um, um, a really um, ugly crash for him as an individual. I do think I do think, as time goes away, there's going to be an erosion of support for him, especially as there is not the constant communication. I think, as I've said before, I think it will factionalize. I mm. think like when when bin Laden died, it's, al-Qaeda didn't go away, it just smashed into a thousand cells, went in a, de- a number of different directions. And I think we're already beginning to see some of that, right? Yeah. There's the proud boys, yeah. there's the... There's the alt right folks. There's different white supremacist groups. There's different, you know, um, white nationalist groups that emanate and pop up. I think that that is continually because, again, it's a larger social problem. While this has looked very much like a cult um, and it behaved very much like a cult and and a cult of personality specifically, it happened for a reason, right? He was able to corral this sentiment and and identify what was going on consciously or not. But those pieces still remain, and I think that there will be groups that will still look to him forever until their own deaths.
0: Because he's like the center of gravity for all of the grievance in, in mm-hmm. all of its different
3: factions. He, his psychosis allowed gave it voice, right? That's who he was, and, and he channeled it. So when people were saying, I like Donald Trump because he speaks his mind— they were they were right. They just what he was saying was racist and misogynist and xenophobic and yeah. ugliness. He's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, that's, that's the way I talk, right? Yeah. That's, that's the way I think, and yeah. that's that was that is part of a broader social problem. So I think I think he has, you know, November third began a very steep decline in in his own personal history. I think it's going to be very. Um, it's not going to be pretty.
0: Doesn't that leave us? vulnerable to another person who, ha- who can build or or has just as large a platform in order to give voice to the same grievance all over again, but maybe in a better way in a, in a, in a in a more effective and less less incompetent way.
3: I think potentially, but let me say this and again, I'm, I'm just a political data guy. One of the things that was really interesting about Donald Trump is if you look at the polling and when it was accurate and when it was inaccurate, it was always inaccurate when his name was literally on the ballot. In 16 and 20, what he did was he overperformed. Well, everybody's – Republicans, Democrats, uh, public polling data. Um, That did not happen in 2018, and it did not happen in the Georgia special election. Even though he was out on the stump and rallying he was not pulling out the same amount of people unless his name was literally on the ballot and I think that that same intensity the cult of personality allows for um a, a, a supercharging of an extremist group and again to use the analogy of bin laden again bin laden when he when he catalyzed a lot of these efforts and of course some of that extremism has always been there but when he catalyzed it there was a similar cult of personality there was somebody that they could look to yeah very hard to recapture and re and and emulate that. It doesn't mean that there aren't despots and cult of personalities that don't rise throughout history. There always will be. But to follow in the footsteps of one is extraordinarily difficult. And it's why you don't see a clear heir apparent, even his own children, right? Ivanka is probably looked at as probably the next, likely. Don Jr.'s got his own issues. Josh Hawley's desperately trying to do it. Ted Mm -hmm. Cruz is trying to weasel into there. But there is no heir apparent to this because nobody is... Donald Trump. And right. that's the point. He was unique. And that uniqueness is part of the attraction. Mm.
0: Okay. Back to the actual topic here. Although I could, I, we, <laughs> we need to spend a lot of time on this, but <laughs> but, uh, but, I want to go to New York. Susan, I have a question for you. Uh, as someone who knows New York very well, not only is Trump facing significant legal troubles, um, it's well known, thanks to the New York Times, that he's in a bit of financial trouble as well. Um, and that's putting it mildly. First, can you remind our listeners what we learned about Trump's taxes and debts last fall and how this is all tied together with the investigations that are that are now underway?
1: So we've learned that Donald Trump owes about four hundred million dollars to mm-hmm. various people, and that and we don't know bank, he owes it
0: to correct?
1: Right? because we okay. haven't seen his tax returns. We do know, though, that he hasn't paid taxes in forever. And that's been public. And when I say I mean decades like he is or maybe 700 or just little here and there. How this ties back and I think is the bigger problem for Donald Trump and why I think he is just so afraid of all this happening is now we start seeing him exposed through those tax returns because that's what these lawsuits were going to be. That's going to be the foundation. These are literally the receipts. This isn't some random phone call that people may not want to pay attention to in some place called Ukraine. This isn't as insightful and guilty as I think Donald Trump was on January 6th. Some people can say, but that's what's the difference between that and freedom of speech? And we talked about that. Mm -hmm. But this is the receipts. This is Mm -hmm. showing what he has and doesn't have and what he owes. And he is Always been playing it out. He always settles a case. He will take you to court and he'll act like he's going to go all the way down. And if he thinks he's going to lose, he settles because he doesn't want to expose himself. He also showed something very, very interesting in the last weeks of his presidency. He vetoed the National Defense Authorization Act. And he said, oh, because I don't want, you know, we should allow bases to be named after Confederate uh, soldiers and we should um fight social media no i think it was all about something that was tacked on to that and it was called the corporate transparency act and why i'm going down this rabbit hole is yes. because the transparency act requires that llcs no longer be secret you must show on to the department mm. of treasury who owns that llc and what do LLCs do, especially in New York, they buy a lot of apartments. Uh, They wash a lot of money. uh, And I am convinced, not conspiracy theory, but I actually think there's a good case to be made (laughs) that that's why he tried to veto the Defense Authorization Act, because he knows that really reveals him to show who he's been doing business with Whose money he's been washing? Is it legal? And that all comes out of these lawsuits or investigations from um, Letitia James, the New York State Attorney General. And let's not forget, she's already um, interviewed Eric Trump under oath back in October. So there is this is all settling in. Donald Trump having to face potential criminal charges certainly does scare him. There's no doubt about it, because now He has no resource that he can call upon. He can't rely on public opinion. He can't get big rallies and say, come to New York and stand outside the courthouse and support me. That won't get him where he needs to go. And the problem is, is that he is going to, all his finances are there for the world to see. His banker at Deutsche Bank, who was let go, was done so under suspicious circumstances for how money was being lent. No mm. one will come to him and give him money. There's no bank that he can literally, even if he has it and he wants to give it to the bank, they're not accepting it. <laughs> think about that. He, banks imagine? don't want someone, Donald <laughs> Trump's money. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how bad the relationship is. But when you look at these LLCs and what they are going to expose, I think underneath it, that's one of the things that this investigation will bring up and really scare Donald Trump
0: watch this space wow okay now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of this week let's look ahead briefly to next week what stories and developments are you watching for lucy
2: well, you know, we now know that the House uh, will strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments, most likely. And I'm really worried about that. And okay. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Okay. I'm worried about that because I think, in keeping with a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in the last hour, that in a way, these kinds of small acts where Republicans are are basically taking the posture like, yes, we don't want that here, is more dangerous than, than when they just sort of say nothing about it. It because it allows the kind of stuff that's happening underneath that really had not bubbled up to the surface for a long time to go on it's like no look we took care of that right we nothing to see here and so I, I'm interested in how that shakes out and how after that vote how people will hear about it um I'm also really really interested in some of these issues that are cropping up for instance in the fallout of the Robin Hood reddit V oh, Wall yeah. Street episode how they shake out among federal lawmakers um you know we saw that AOC and Ted Cruz were oddly aligned in that but there's so much bad blood um understandably that one wonders will they ever as we kind of get through the impeachment trial and get on to governing will they be able to come together now that democrats and republicans have a power sharing agreement what is the actual uh Vibe <laughs> yeah. of Congress yeah. going to be, and so I think that we're starting to see little issues pop up, COVID relief bill, and more. That even as the impeachment trial rolls through, uh, we'll have to see what what will the dynamic be.
3: Yeah, how will it actually function, Mike? Smartmatic. The voting software company that Trump's lawyers falsely accused of election fraud has filed a $2.7 billion billion defamation lawsuit against Fox (laughs) News. (laughs) Yeah, $2.7 billion. They're going full dominion here. Look, this is going to bring a lot of the conservative media conspiracy theory uh, companies to their knees. It's going to crack them. They're just going to be drowned in litigation. And again, we've talked about this on previous uh, episodes on how you kind of limit the false news Stuff. Um, I'm really proud of these companies to be stepping up and just crushing, crushing these, these, these news sources that have been peddling in conspiracy theory uh financially. It's like if you're gonna you don't get a free ride here. Uh if you're gonna if you're gonna try and destroy democracy, if you're gonna try to incite revolution, uh using our company's name and smearing us in the process, there's gonna be a price to pay. So $2.7 billion, uh, huge number. That's on top of Dominion, my guess is. Any other uh, voting software or hardware company that was named by these groups, which is going to be coming with um, multi billion dollar lawsuits as well. And I think that only um, serves the Republic well.
0: Absolutely. Susan?
1: Oh, just one thing to follow up on Mike's yeah. uh, thing is that these Dominion specifically gave so many warnings. Stop doing this. Stop doing it or we will sue you. Like They have such a record that they are going to lead the way in having, again, bringing the receipts as to where this happened. Um, I think that'll be very public. What I'm looking for next week is what's going to be done under the bright light of impeachment. Hmm. That's where the lights hmm. are going to be shined on. Everyone's going to be following it. We're going to see it all over again. But what deal perhaps could Joe Biden make with the Republicans? Maybe they can get bipartisanship done under the cover of that inauguration story. Or where does potentially Joe Biden decide to go full on like Biden and just take advantage of the situation <laughs> and know that the news media is covering this impeachment and see what he can maybe do something a little more controversial. So what I guess I'm saying is, is that the stories of the week are going to happen under that guise of of impeachment, under that bright light. So I'm looking for those stories.
0: Mike, Susan, Lucy, thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation for our very first politicology roundup. And thank you to everyone at home for listening. If you enjoy the show, it would help tremendously if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about us. I'm Ron Staslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.